0: Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub podcast, I'll be interviewing Charlie Betts. Charlie is a digital and IT management specialist with a focus on big-scale IT operating models. He worked at Wells Fargo as VP and Enterprise Architect for IT Portfolio Management and Systems Management for six years, and has also worked for a number of other big Fortune 100 companies, including Best Buy, AT&T, and Accenture. He is a seasoned presenter and conference keynote speaker at events focusing on IT service management, architecture, and agile methods. He's based in Minneapolis and is a lecturer at the University of St. Thomas, Minnesota, where he is part of the largest software engineering program in the country. Charlie is the author of the LeanPub book, uh, which is currently called the Digital Delivery or Managing Digital Concepts and Practices, and I believe the title is still up for revision. Um, His book is about teaching readers what a digital professional is and what modern IT practitioners need to know. You can follow Charlie on Twitter at Charles T. Betts and read his blog at leanforit.com where the four is the number four. Uh, In this interview, we're going to talk about Charlie's professional interest, his books, and at the end, we'll talk about his experience using LeanPub. Um, So thank you, Charlie, for being on the LeanPub podcast and for listening to that long intro.
1: Certainly. And it's great to meet you, Len, and I really appreciate all the support LeanPub has given me.
0: Oh, well, thanks very much. Uh, It's our our pleasure. We learn a lot from interacting with authors. Um, So I usually like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, And I was wondering if you could... Uh, Tell me a little bit about how you started your career and how you first became interested in uh, IT systems management.
1: Wow. Well, it goes back some years now. I think one of the key moments was being at Best Buy and running something that we were calling a metadata repository and having somebody come up to me and ask, how does this relate to the ITIL concept of a CMDB? And at this point, I maybe have lost half the listeners right there because (laughs) these are fairly obscure topics. But as we scale information technology organizations up, we find that they themselves need their own management. They need their own automation. You have to actually treat the business of IT with the same level of discipline that you treat your supply chain and when you have an IT budget in the range of, say, $5 billion, billion with a B, U.S., which was the budget at Wells Fargo, being spent just on IT, you find that you have actually quite a large supply chain and operations and execution management pro- problem, and you actually need a lot of attention to your systems and your data. So that's kind of the origin story. Now, if I can continue just another half a minute here, in more recent years, I've become very interested in questions of workforce. How do we train the next generation? And so I'll give you origin story number two. Great. About a year, about a year and a half ago, Target Corporation let go several hundred project managers. Some of these project managers wound up in my class at the University of Saint Thomas, where they were somewhat shell shocked, and the statement was made to me. They let hundreds of us go from the PMO and other related organizations, and there are all these DevOps positions open. And I began to realize that the Agile and DevOps movements had achieved a certain level of influence and importance that really required a more coherent societal response, if you will, including the f- addressing the fact that. We've got an educational system that still isn't ready. And so in the intersection of those two stories, my concern for how large digital organizations are run and my concern for the impact that digital, agile, and DevOps are having on society, the economy, and the workforce, those are really the two fundamental bases of my book.
0: Um, And uh, going back a little Uh, further than than this current book. In your first book, um, Architecture and Patterns for IT Service Management. Yes. uh, It has this fascinating subtitle, Making Shoes for the Cobbler's Children. And when I first read that, in my mind, I interpreted it to mean um, what to be describing the challenge of providing something to someone who's used to having the very best of it. Um, but I then read more about your book, and it turned out it was quite the opposite. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what making shoes for co- the cobbler's children means and the, and why that problem is so important.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, it's, the, it's an old saying, um, and maybe a little bit obscure in this day and age. But the saying is, the cobbler's children are always the last to get shoes. Okay. You understand, right? Yeah. And so in information technology organizations, especially in the 90s and early 2000s, we saw this problem. We saw massive, again, I'll use the term supply chains, IT delivery chains, supply chains, pipelines, and they were being managed with spreadsheets and emails, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of business, IT organizations that if you spun them out would land in the fortune 500 themselves and they're running their business with spreadsheets and emails and intuition and back of the seat calculations and a lot of emotion and politics and who screams loudest and so this has really been uh, an important theme for me as i continue on with with this work is you know how do we actually approach information technology management from a more rational perspective and that's a, that's a big part of what I'm you know continuing to attempt to do here.
0: Yeah, in one place you wrote about uh running IT like a business and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that idea which I guess we're we're touching on already.
1: Sure. Well, so the first thing to I just will note that Unlike some authors, I don't get attached to various ideas I may throw out. I mean, I can talk about running IT like a business, which is a thought experiment that's actually been around since the 1970s. The idea that a digital organization or an information technology organization actually has all of the aspects of a business in the small. It's like a microcosm, if I can use that word. And this observation was first made by uh, I believe Robert nolan in in you know forty some years ago um, and it's been made ever since you know how do we understand the information technology organization while it needs to you know be run more in a business like way but That starts to run into some limitations because you're kind of assuming, well, maybe it it wasn't run in a business-like way. How is it even possible that it wasn't being run in a business-like way? And I think that the implication is that the IT organizations may have been a little bit too much technologically driven. They may have gotten a little obsessed with particular platforms. They don't necessarily have that very clear line of sight from what they're trying to do with the IT and what the business is trying to achieve in terms of its market positioning and strategy. And I think that's where the, you know, we need to run IT like a business comes out. It's actually a phrase that I'm not hearing as much anymore. I'm not using it as much myself, but it certainly has a lot of resonance and we certainly still see, you know, instances where, You know, certainly when you see an IT person or a software developer, say, I'll pick on the developers and they just want to do something because it's cool. Well, cool is not a business case, you know, and that's one of the reasons that I use the startup progression in my book, because I think that the scaling model, when we actually think about information technology from this thought experiment of from startup to enterprise The startup, you can't afford to have any division between IT and the business. The digital product is the business, and if you don't have a very clear understanding of that product's market positioning, you're not going to survive, which is why I use that as a thought experiment to train my students, even if they're not going to go into a startup.
0: Yeah, on that note, um, when I was reading uh, a a couple of the posts on your blog, um, I was struck by how... um, one of the themes of this this podcast, I interview a lot of software side people uh One of the themes has been that in the in a world where i mean especially if your business is i t is a for like i t products like digital products um but also with software eating the world, everything uh is sort of driven by software and um there's a sense amongst the people I interview that one can no longer be an executive without having some domain specific expertise. Um, you need to know something uh, about what makes the computers go, um, and what's really happening in that part of your company's infrastructure. Um, but what you're what you're what you're talking about is a, a responsibility and a requirement on the other side of things. That if you're doing IT, you can't just stop when the computer, as long as the computers are going, you need to understand what they're going for.
1: Exactly, and you know, for the first 50 years of computers, the primary business case was efficiency. I mean, we had hundreds or thousands of people managing paper filing systems. You'd go into a company like Prudential in 1947, and there would be thousands of file clerks. You know, even hundreds, even a hundred years before that, you had huge counting houses, they used to call them. Um, Remember uh, Bob Cratchit in A Christmas Carol? I mean, that was the kind of work that white-collar professionals did, transcribing ledger entries And it was the whole rise of the white-collar professional. Well, when World War II happened, people started saying these newfangled computers they're using to calculate artillery trajectories and break codes, like Alan Turing and The Imitation Game with Benedict Cumberbatch, "Um, couldn't we use these computers to actually automate some of this paper shuffling we're doing in the big insurance companies and banks? And for decades... That was the business case of computers. Efficiency, increasing organizational efficiency, trading headcount of file clerks for headcount of programmers and developers and data entry operators. And in general, it was a positive business case. Otherwise, we would not be where we are today. But then around 2000, things started to get really interesting. Maybe even, even back into the 90s, we started to see... All of a sudden, you see the beginning stirrings of digital, where it was no longer a matter of efficiency. You can't really explain Amazon.com in terms of efficiency and automation and replacing file clerks with computers. It's just not the business case. And the business drivers that led executives to replace white-collar clerks with computers were very different than the business drivers that Jeff Bezos was perceiving when he started Amazon.com. And so then we had the whole rise of digital and we had computers who were, which were now focusing much more on effectiveness, not just efficiency. And that's a very, again, a very different set of business drivers. Efficiency hasn't gone away and it would be very dangerous to say that it had, but now it's been enhanced or increased into this new, way of understanding digital value
0: it's very interesting um the connection between that and how people who are studying the many broad subjects that are encompassed uh by uh, by the concept of it um should be trained um and i uh watched a on youtube a video of a talk you gave in san francisco last year for DevOps devops enterprise usa where, yes where you presented uh on the challenges facing higher education and teaching IT. And you went into a lot of really interesting detail about what the different uh, concepts that are taught are and how they're kind of bundled together and how both the change that you were just talking about and the, cha- the sort of more um, technical, I guess in a sense, change towards agile and DevOps um, in managing IT systems uh, is going to have an influence um, on how or ought to have an influence on how people are taught. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the the shift you've seen happening in, in the industry and how you think um, that ought to impact the way people are taught.
1: Sure. Yeah, it's a topic that I have quite a bit of passion about because certainly stemming from that as i said that 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 formative story of you know the people who'd been laid off because devops you know and who knew i mean this is this is a surprise, and as I look at how computing and information technology is taught today, the fundamentals are handled reasonably well. you know we know how we know we, we have computer science faculty who do a great job teaching you know automata and discrete math and compilers and algorithms and data structures and operating system kernel design and all of these kinds of things that they view as very fundamental and kind of a core. But the trouble is that there is still a long line of sight from that fundamental theory to industry practice And it was funny. I was at my stepsister's um, house over the holidays. My stepsister uh, has been a dean at the University of Minnesota Medical School. And her son, David, uh, actually works at Google. So we have some very interesting conversations sometimes. And I asked David, I said, and and David graduated, uh, you know, with uh, I think a double major in math and computer science from the University of Minnesota. So he's a highly qualified individual. And I said, David, when you first landed your couple of industry jobs, were you prepared from your degree for your day-to-day work experience? And he said, he laughed, he laughed loudly, (laughs) loud and long, and said, of course not. It was completely, my, my degree was... Other than the, you know, the, the technology, I was completely unprepared. And his, his, my stepsister, his mom, really perked up her ears because she's from the medical community where they handle things a little differently. And the long and the short of the conversation, and all the three of us agreed, is that the state of the art in computing right now is kind of like giving pe- teaching people a very good fundamental grounding in biology and then handing them a scalpel and turning them into the operating room.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a great (laughs) analogy. You talk about, you talk, you use in the talk, you um, mention the analogy to um, uh, how medical students are all taught rigorously how to do personal hygiene and also the the importance that this is a persistent requirement that you have to do all the time. And it doesn't matter if you're, you know, I mean, you know, a nurse or a brain surgeon. Every time you go into that room, you wash your hands and you hold them up in front of you um, and you make sure you do that right. And you, right. you you draw a direct comparison to that and version control, yes. um, which struck me because one thing I've always had difficulty, uh, and, and I came at this not from um, uh, uh, the IT side, but from um, kind of the uh, investment banking side of things. But I learned the importance of version control um, in my in my. In one of my jobs and it is so it actually or just not to digress but it is actually something that is very difficult to get people
1: to do yeah yeah and and yet it is the fundamental hygiene of digital systems you know and and you know Andrew Clay schaefer said it best you know without version control there is no agile you know and Andrew gets to have an opinion on that stuff he's you know one of the great thought leaders in the community. And so,
0: what do you think? Um, uh, at a, I know you produced—you were part of producing a report um, uh, that was sort of laying the groundwork for um, change. And I was wondering if you could talk a little sure. bit about that.
1: Sure. Well, there was a report that we put together. I put together with some of my colleagues in the Minnesota State University system. We put together a sixty-page report called "Renewing the Curriculum: Responding to IT." Uh, Agile, uh, sorry, DevOps, Agile, and Digital Transformation. And this report went out to all of the computing, IT, and information systems faculty in the Minnesota state system. Now, this is not the University of Minnesota, which is the Tier 1 land-grant research institution. This is actually the Tier 2 and Tier 3 teaching colleges that teach roughly four times as many people as the university. I mean, this is where the mainstream of education happens in this country, is these these huge two- and four-year systems that are primarily based on teaching. And so I felt if we really wanted to make a difference to the day-to-day student, I mean, to the two-year IT student at Fond du Lac, you know, um, tribal technical college, you know, in rural Minnesota, you know, the community college devoted to the native community, you know, how do we make a difference for people like that you know, we need to actually get some guidance out there that represents the state of the art because, Len, they're still being taught waterfall. They're still being taught project, that project management is the be-all and end-all. You know, they're still taught the planning fallacy that if something goes wrong in a project, it means that somebody just didn't plan it enough or there was a failure of execution. There is no discussion of the iterative and information-generating aspect of product management. And it's so important that we start getting this out into the mainstream bodies of knowledge.
0: And could you talk a little bit about the distinction between project management and product management and perhaps, I mean, if you can, specifically in the context of what happened at Target when those sure. when those hundreds of employees were let go?
1: Sure. Well, so, and and this is, by the way, Target has been very, very public about this. I mean, multiple public addresses. I'm not, you know, dealing in any kind of insider information here. Target's uh, to be credited for how open they've been in this transformation. But what's been said on multiple occasions in public forum is, is that Target, for the most part, has gone to um, a structure of, I've heard, the number 800 Product teams and these are persistent teams that are not broken apart and reassembled every year I mean that was the old school you would Bring the team to the work you'd fund the work you'd fund these initiatives You would maybe have you know some degree of continuity on the business side with business management but the idea was is that well you know, we're going to give the business some more money. They're going to turn around and give the money to IT. The first thing IT does is they scope the work, they assign a project manager, and the project manager goes out and quote-unquote sources three Java developers and a DBA and a tester and a requirements analyst, right? And these people were perceived to be infinitely flexible and transferable. The economic word, your investment banking, the economics word is fungible, Right. So the, there is this persistent assumption of fungibility of resource. Well, in complex systems, this does not work. One Java developer is not necessarily like another Java developer. And the singular unit of value really is the persistent team that can grapple with a problem in a sustained way over time and build a collective cross-functional mental model of what it is they are dealing with. And when you go down that road, you find you don't need as many project managers. You might need some scrum masters to kind of, you know, serve as um, facilitators, methodologists, and also to some extent make sure that the team is protected from too many external distractions. You certainly need a product owner, so you need somebody who has domain expertise in whatever the product is trying to do. But the idea that that any chunk of money bigger than 50000 needs to have some project manager with it who's going to spend their day drawing gantt charts ultimately you know there's and target's not the only company there's just a lot of questioning in the industry as to whether that's a value-add operating model now sometimes you do need to coordinate across teams, and so you're really good project managers I think will become release train managers um, they'll become you know coordinator there still is a need to coordinate sometimes if you've got you know five or six or ten small teams, but the end net result has got to be a coherent release that is up and running by September one and stable in time for black friday you know i'm I'm not dogmatic that it all can just happen through the magic of microservices. Um, but there's less of a need for that kind of role.
0: And how does this translate into um, teaching practice, for example, switching from an older waterfall um, way of working or way of producing software uh, and transitioning to continuous integration or flow or continuous delivery? How How does that change teaching?
1: Well, it's played out for me in a couple ways. The first thing is that I have a fully functional Small DevOps virtual lab that is defined as code. It's out there on GitHub. And so I can spin up and tear down a basic continuous delivery pipeline that includes JUnit and Ant. Um, It's based on VirtualBox and Ubuntu virtual machines. Um, I've got a little silly Hello World Java application. I've got Git and Jenkins and Artifactory and Chef all running the thing. So Very much experiential. And this is just an educational best practice. The educational system is becoming very enamored with flipped courses where you don't lecture as much, but instead you make the students watch the lecture offline on their own time. And then when they come into class, it's all experiential. Which I think is really a great way to run classes, and I think really the best way because when you're up there lecturing, the students are just surfing. You know, <laughs> you know maybe that's a reflection on my whether or not I'm a compelling lecturer. But I hear it consistently from faculty that you know lectures just leave them cold.
0: Are you are you talking about the Calavera project? Is that?
1: Yeah, yeah, okay. that's the Cal, that's the Calavera project on GitHub. Okay. And full disclaimer: I know Calavera needs some updating. I've been working on my book on Leanpub. So right. the next generation of Calavera this summer, I'm going to get it out. On, I'm going to get you know, some Node.js microservices, and I'm going to be standing up the infrastructure using Docker. You know. and, you know, the point is, is that you, 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 you don't have to be on the bleeding edge, but you've just got to be keeping up to some level, maybe a couple of years behind where the bleeding edge is. And then the other piece, the other way that it shows up, to your initial question, how does, how does continuous delivery show up? It also shows up in the fact that you may have, if you saw my DevOps uh, presentation, you know that I was critical of software engineering and the fact that the software engineering and even the large structures of curricula guidance from the ACM and the IEEE and the AIS have basically baked in waterfall. I mean, we've got the idea that you plan the degree with the, you know, the IS, IS majors plan, computer science and software engineers build and IT majors run. And so we've baked Waterfall into the fundamental computing curriculum. And then within a software engineering program, for example, you have three credits on requirements, three credits on analysis and design, um, maybe various practical coding kinds of classes, three credits on QA. Um, And so we've baked Waterfall into those curricula too.
0: Yeah, on that that subject, actually, that was a really interesting thing that I learned from your talk was that there actually, I wasn't aware that there was a high level of, detailed, uh, guidance, um, coming from various industry associations that, um, directs the way, um, these different degrees are structured. There yes. Was a, there was a really interesting table of where there were sort of columns that, uh, were for skills and then rows that were for, um, different specializations within it, like, um, uh, computer engineering and software engineering, um, and, um, uh there was a ranking of in each in each like intersection of row and column was a little number that mm-hmm. that indicated how much expertise a student should have in that specialization in that particular skill and it was really fascinating to see the kind of uh this kind of underbelly <laughs> that i had been aware existed for the design of those programs before
1: well and we've they've baked in certain assumptions. They've baked in if I if I can use the word tailorist, they've baked in some very tailorist assumptions and they are thoroughly embedded in the curricula you can point to them. I mean the idea that a computer scientist should know next to nothing about product management. So you know basically you're going to sit in a in a in a dark cellar and every so often there's this trap door that's going to open up and this stuff called requirements is going to fall in on you. And it doesn't really, you don't need to have any domain expertise, you know, you've just got this interface called the requirement, and it lands on you, and then you do your thing, and then you get out in the industry, and the first thing they say is, well, go talk to the product manager, and, you know, you've just gotten out of four years of a seaside, you're like, what's a product manager, you know?
0: Yeah, it's, um, it's actually, I just wanted to mention, um, for anyone listening who uh, didn't get the Taylor reference, I believe that's to Frederick Taylor. Yes. and if you'd like to learn more about that, you can listen to um, uh, another one of our interviews with Eric Dietrich, where Eric and I go into go into that subject in detail. Um, but yeah, sorry, sorry for the interruption. Um,
1: no, no, uh, very, very apropos. It's a, it's an odd reference, but one that comes up a lot lately as we talk about digital. Yeah.
0: yeah, and do you think that the way and how do you get say, for example, those Taylor's principles out? I mean, do you need to lobby the industry associations to put out different guidance, or do you need to lobby the higher education institutions and tell them you shouldn't be following this guidance as rigorously as you are?
1: Yeah, and that's to some extent, you know, developing a 60-page report with the input of, you know, 12 faculty and a couple of dozen industry notables was essentially the first step on that kind of lobbying journey. Now, I'd like to say that, you know, we've gotten great results and great feedback. It's been a little bit quiet on the feedback side with that report, but I suspect that this is the kind of thing that people need to digest and think about for a little while. This is, you know, some some fairly significant things that are being advocated and recommended. But I think that they're going to realize that they're really at a crisis point. And I think, you know, as I go back to the target story, I mean, there is a Senate in the state of Minnesota there is a Senate subcommittee on higher education and workforce. So I talked to colleagues of mine in the agile community here in town and I, and I posed them this question. I said, look, if somebody subpoenaed you or called you to testify before the Minnesota state Senate committee on higher education and workforce, and they said, and they said to you, Mr. X is a noted industry practitioner. Who's, you know, clearly career successful would you recommend that the Minnesota State College system continue to teach project management? And the answer I'm consistently getting is no. And in fact, that the University of Berkeley in the iSchool, I think I'll I'll tell the story that Jez um, Humble-related because he's he's out there and it's a matter of record. The the, uh, UC Berkeley in what they call the iSchool used to have a, a project management course they no longer have a project management course. It's been shifted to a product management course. And I would say, you know, we're having some similar conversations in various institutions here in Minnesota. Now, is project management go completely away? No, there still is some need for project man- formal project management. It provides a useful set of tools, but perhaps it's not as required, or perhaps we start to enrich project management courses and insist that at least a third of them Uh, be attentive to product management concerns.
0: Um, Before we move on, thanks for that great answer. Um, It leads me to my last question I want to ask before I move on to talking about your book. Um, Sure. One of the, uh, I mentioned themes coming up in the podcast earlier, and one of those is um, whether or not a person I'm interviewing would recommend that someone who wants to get into software engineering, particularly, you know, product development side, software engineering, should they go, to university at all, um, and I, would, I find that about half of the people that I talk to, whether they went to university to train in computer science themselves or not, they say, um, no, they wouldn't recommend in 2017 that someone do that, and um, I've never had anyone as eminently qualified um, to answer that question as you on the podcast before, so I was wondering if, if you could give us your thoughts on that subject.
1: Sure. Well, high praise indeed, and, and thank you. Um, you know, I, I am, I am very much of two minds on that. So I believe in the power of education. And I think that there are certainly fundamental practices and fundamental techniques and theories. If we wind up with people not understanding the fundamental theories of Turing and Shannon. Um, you know the Church-Turing hypothesis, Shannon's, infor- you know, Shannon's information theory, how to you know how it is that digital log- how how it is that logical structures are mapped onto digital circuits. I mean, we're going to have real problems. We won't be able to stand up and support Intel chip fabs if we lose that that body of knowledge. So, from a societal and a workforce point of view, I think it's critical that many people, large numbers of people, continue to go to formal computer science programs and computer engineering programs and understand the basic material science digital questions of digital logic computability all of that i think it's very important that as a society we have people with that basis of education however i am also noticing and you probably you might have noticed the y combinator study from the devops talk that i gave where they were very clear that the software developers that were most in demand for the Y Combinator startups were not the technic the most technical programmers but were the programmers who had a sympathy for and an understanding of product development so in my ideal world you would still have people going to computer science programs but they would they would do two things first of all they would be given at least at least three credits i mean come on i mean i know there's always you know, fighting over what the required courses should be. And I've, you know, I'm familiar with those discussions at a faculty level. But three credits of product management should be a strongly encouraged elective for people going into industry contexts. That's not that big of an ask. Um, And then secondly, I do think that there should be very, very rich capstone experiences, Um, not necessarily internships. I mean, I know that internships can be great, but do the internships really give people the full spectrum grounding in digital product management that they need? And I'm a, more of a fan of capstone, and I'm almost with a fan of starting capstone early. Um, what, so that what's
0: can, uh, what's capstone?
1: A capstone project is like you take two semesters and you actually do something. It's a it's a very common engineering school practice. Okay. This is your senior. This is your senior project. Okay. You know, you know, create something. You know, and so you get credit for it and you get graded for it, you get juried on it. Um, It depends on the program and it's very hard to, you know, characterize, you know, universally across education. But I do think that 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 giving people more of an experiential bent, giving them some of the basics of product management and then certainly um, changing some of the discussions around QA testing requirements management. And emphasizing the whole problem of fast feedback and information generation in systems design, uh, also, you know, changing some of the way that, that systems architecture is taught. I mean, I took a systems, a, a distributed systems course where literally they tried to integrate the, the system we were building. We tried to integrate it the last week of class. And the thing fell over and didn't work and we were all demoralized and then it was only after that that i really you know started reading deeply into things like Alistair Coburn's Walking Skeleton and realized well of course you can't integrate a system on the last day no matter how good you think your interface definitions are that's just wrong and yet that is how i was taught by a person who was actually a fairly senior computer scientist but even this individual didn't really know you know some of the problems of implementation. We should have integrated the system first, and then enhanced the modules with continuous integration throughout the semester. We would have had a fully fully functioning system at the end. But in 2003, that was not the state of the practice. That was not the state of the educational practice. So I've gone in a couple different directions there. So I apologize. That I rambled a little bit, but
0: you know. oh no, that's okay. It's all um, very uh, interesting. I'm I'm learning from you um, uh, on the subject of creating something. Um, you've written a book, yes. Um, that is currently called "Delivering Digital" or, or "or Managing Digital," and I know that you're you have you're floating different ideas for what the book will be called in the end, yes. Um, but I wanted to uh, give you the opportunity to explain what who the book is for um, and sure. wha- why you wrote it.
1: Sure. Well, I wrote the book. First and foremost, for my students, I teach a required survey class at the University of St. Thomas. University of St. Thomas in Minneapolis and St. Paul has the largest software engineering program in the country. At least that's what I'm told. Um, My students are required to take the IT students. And there is an information, there is a a software engineering track and an information technology track. The IT students are required to take my course, which essentially serves as a survey course. Um, That's how it's evolved over time. Originally, it was going to be the ITIL course, but I came in already fairly critical of ITIL, and it's evolved now into basically the equivalent of an MIS survey course, but from kind of an, an inside-out perspective. If the MIS survey courses, they make everybody in the business school take them. You said you had a background in banking, so I'm betting maybe you had an MIS, had a B school or, or MBA background.
0: No, I wrote uh, my doctorate in English literature.
1: Oh, okay. Well, good for you. Uh, <laughs> I, I love it. I'm a, my, my BA was in political science, so okay. actually I'm a big fan, big fan of liberal arts. Okay. Um, and, and I don't think we're going to get to good product management. I think, I think liberal arts majors actually make great product managers, but that's a topic for another day and maybe another book. Um, so I wrote the book as basically I said, I need a survey text for my students, and none of the current management information systems texts are suitable I mean, I have one that goes on for 20 pages about the beauties of Waterfall and then half a page. Oh, Agile might be a thing someday. And this book is copyright 2014. You know, I mean, at this point, you know, the, the, the current management information sec- texts are, you know, really they're really quite behind, even if their copyright is current because they re them every year and make small revisions so that they can sell new copies of the books every year. So I said, I've got no choice. I've got to write a book. I had written a book before. I was had been using my book in my class. The book, the Architecture and Patterns book, the learnings from that was, it was just not suitable as a survey text because it was written at the enterprise perspective. And my students would come in and they would just glaze over with all this enterprise junk, you know. And it was just too big an elephant to start, you know, too big a, a whale, like swallowing a whale. And so I said, well, how do I come up with a learning progression that brings the student along, and I had the thought, why you know we started to think about I started to think about walking skeleton, I started experimenting with the Calavera simulation, you know the minimum viable platform for teaching DevOps. and then I also ran into the startup literature, books like Scaling up by Vern Harnish. And I said, well, why don't we treat the course as an exercise in scaling? Because every student can identify. With Larry Page and Sergey Brin in the garage starting Google, or eighty years before, Dave and Bill starting Hewlett-Packard. You know, it's a the great, you know, universal success story, you know, Rags to Riches, Horatio Alger.
0: Or Hero's Journey.
1: Yeah, Hero exactly. Steve Blank, the hero's journey. And so um, yeah, so there's deep iconic um, you know, metaphorical terrain we're working on here. And it and it works well. And and it, uh, certainly, as I viewed it as the hero's journey, all of this stuff that my students were struggling with when I was approaching it in the wrong learning progression, it started to make sense. They're like, yeah, I can see how now I need to cons- be concerned about a team. Now I have a team of teams problem. Now I've got an enterprise problem. And and whereas discussions of governance, if I'd started lecturing day one on you know the COSO and the Treadway Commission and formal controls, my gosh, you know, the students, they wouldn't have stood for that. They would have just been completely bewildered. But by lecture 10, I've set the stage. I say, you know, yeah, you've got that first initial system you were working on the first three weeks of the course. Well, you've now got a thousand of those. And so you have a scaling problem that's emergent. And so now we need to talk about what governance actually means.
0: It's interesting, you talk in the book about, um, I forget who it was who came up with the idea, but it's something about scaling valleys or something like that.
1: Yeah, that's Vern Harnish. He uses the valley of death, valley uh, of death metaphor. Right. And the, the idea that you go through this crisis, this like dark night of the, of the organization, as you realize that, hey, what got us to being a high-performing team, those same techniques will not get us to being a high-performing team of teams. We need new techniques. Well, what are those new techniques? What do we need and why and when? And then you can have a very interesting conversation and a very grounded conversation in things like, do we need project management right now? Do we need process management right now? Whereas, again, the temptation, and this is a, a trap that the current management information systems textbooks fall into, is to just start with some of those things as a priori assumptions. Well, of course, we're going to have project management. We're going to learn all about it in chapter one. And then people are like, well, yeah, but they don't use formal project management in startups.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You write also about how um, one of the, I think this is what you were saying, but one of the dangers um, that happens when you reach one of these scaling points, you know, where you go from being, you know, just a founder to having a team of eight to 10 people to having 500 people to having 5,000 people (laughs) is that at that moment when you start to formalize things, that were not previously formalized, um, you write, the danger, of course, is that the formalization effort may be driven by its own logic and start to lose track of the all-critical business context.
1: Exactly. And I
0: thought that was a, I've never seen such a clear description of what I would just call, um, like, you know, the bureaucracy trap uh, there. But, you know, that description itself points to the way out, which is whenever you're engaging in a formalization effort, something that probably only formalization professionals enjoy. Um, uh, you, need to, you need to keep your eye on the purpose for the formalization effort. Um, exactly. And, and that purpose is continuing to develop and produce whatever your products are. Um, and that's, that's true at all levels, that that's your mission. And don't lose, yep. don't, don't lose sight of that when you're undergoing one of those efforts.
1: And it's so tempting because when you bring in specialists in something like IT service management or process management, well, their functional specialization is what they know. You know, they've got a toolbox. They've got more than a hammer, to be fair. It's not just a hammer and a nail problem, but they've got a certain set of tools. And if you don't really watch them very carefully and and constantly ask critical questions, they will pull out all the tools. And that can be very dangerous. You know, for example, in the, the ITIL framework calls for 26 processes. Now, I'm on the record as saying that I don't think that any company of any scale can actually accommodate ITIL's full process model. It was created as kind of a thought experiment. You could call it a reference architecture. But I've seen companies go quite a bit too far down the road of implementing that. And there is a classic example of the formalization effort taking a, taking on its own logic in a very dangerous way.
0: You touched on this earlier, but you also write in the book uh, saying it is possible that there is no higher unit of value in the modern economy than the higher performing team. Yes. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you think that's true in the modern economy um, and, and maybe how that's something that should be taught to students in IT related subjects.
1: It's a great question. I'm so glad you brought that up because I was actually uh, trying to figure out how to segue into that point myself. So you're great. So here's the thing with the high performing team and the reason why it's important and why I use the qualifier modern. It's because if I were to sum up what's different about the economy, somebody said, Charlie, just how would you break it down for a CFO? And. I would say if I had an impatient CFO who just wanted a one sentence answer, I would say to that CFO, it's because R and D is now pervasive. And if they're a good CFO and they understand the modern corporation, uh, they understand that R and D is not operations. You know, the, what's the one thing that's prob- that probably is not under your COO, I would hope is not, is R and D. Right. Because R&D is that iterative, risky, experimental thing. Now, when you are doing highly uncertain iterative work with a lot of unknown unknowns, you're in chaotic or complex situations. The most effective approach for solving that is what has been established, you know, in military organizations for many years is a high-performing cross-functional team that has solid cohesion multiple specialties and in the words of amazon can be fed by no more than two pizzas and there is so much organizational literature you know that that can kind of converges on this point and in the modern economy since so much of it is r d driven well why did i say that to the cfo why am i saying operations is going away it's because we're automating everything and when auto, when operations becomes completely digitized and automated what's left well if you want if, if you want something more than just factories full of robots the people have to do something what do the people gravitate to they gravitate to the non-deterministic creative work ie the research and development and of course software development is only one form of R&D this is something I have to remind software developers of that they're not special they will say, "Oh, well, we've got nothing to learn from manufacturing or physical industry. I'm like, excuse me, your colleagues who are chemical engineers or biotechnical engineers or electrical engineers might beg to differ because their work is everybody's is iterative and uncertain and risky. Don Reinertson is really the guru of this whole discussion. And he just views it as product development, whether it's software based or chemical based. You're trying to wrestle with unknown unknowns. And go ahead.
0: Uh, yeah, I was just, um, uh, before I move on to asking you questions about the experience creating your book, um, which is sure. I think quite interesting. Um, yes. Uh, on that subject of automation and jobs, um, uh, just generally speaking, what's your take on that? That's something that a lot of people are talking more and more about um, these days, especially in the face of discussions about you know, people being left behind in the economy already. Um, there's this looming possibility of greater automation of of the kind of tasks that people are doing, including driving. What yep. what are your thoughts on that as a as someone who um has a lot of experience with this kind of activity of automation and also, you know, teaching the kids who are going to be going out there, maybe doing that um, right. in the future.
1: Well I, I'm very concerned and I think that this is one of the responses is that we have to make it clear to people that the future is going to be, you know, the value is going to be added in creative um, endeavors. Now, there's always going to be a need to surround the digital systems with some level of human interfaced support. And that's why I don't think operations management is ever gonna go away. I kind of define operations as the more relatively more interrupt-driven work. But in general, you have to understand that kind of the fundamental dynamic, which is that R&D in, in and digital, digital R&D is driving the economy and so how do you latch on to that as a career strategy and in that way i'm hoping that my book is of service to people you know who need to you know prosper into this new new economy but i'm i'm very concerned i've got a friend who you know actually drives a truck and he's quite worried
0: yeah it's interesting i think one of the crises we'll face will be determined by the fact that not everybody is suit to, suited to Create, mm-hmm. creative types of work um, a lot of yeah. people get a lot of pleasure from doing what I call tooling around which is you know you get in you get in your truck and you go get this and you go do that and you go get this and you go do that and you put this together and you take that apart um, and if that type of activity goes away my personal concern is what are people who are suited towards those types of activities going to do that won't make them miserable right
1: it's the question of the age, Len, and I don't know the answer. Okay. You, I'm sure you're are you following Martin Ford.
0: Who is that? Sorry, no.
1: Martin Ford wrote The Lights in the Tunnel. He's one of the leading thinkers in this.
0: Okay. Well, I will in start this. following him now.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, thanks for the suggestion. Um, uh, on sure. The, on the subject of the process of writing and publishing your book, um, Sure. I, I looked into it, and uh, so your first book was published by Morgan Kaufman, which is an yes. imprint of the giant publishing house uh, or company Elsevier. Um, yes. And you contributed to another book that was published by um, Productivity Press, which is an imprint of another publishing giant, Taylor and Francis. Um, and I know that you eventually decided um, to, for your new book, that you would set up your own publishing company and manage everything yourself um, uh, under, I believe it's called Digital Management Academy. Yes. Um, is the name of the company. And I was wondering if you could yes. talk a little bit about your journey from starting out with a project that was going to be published by a, um, a conventional publisher to deciding to do it yourself, and what that was like.
1: Well, uh, some of it's in the in the uh, in the uh, introduction or the preface to the book. I mean, I, uh, as you're alluding to, the 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 there was a few different things that went into it. Um, first of all, was the desire to have the ability to publish the book in you know for public consumption in a in kind of an you know for public consumption and feedback and be able to iterate on the book a little bit more readily just have more flexibility that the publishing process was didn't have to be such a huge batch process well I mean, realistically the publishing process to some extent is somewhat batch driven and i could you know talk more about that but i won't um I mean, it still was a large batch of work, (laughs) even though I can be a little more iterative with it. The other thing was, you know, it was certainly an interesting technical challenge. I was not really happy with, you know, for example, how the Elsevier book came out on the Kindle. And so just understanding for myself the various tool chain aspects was an interesting uh, mental challenge, and I found it fairly stimulating. Uh, I ultimately wrote the book in ASCII doc and then wrote a series of transformations from ASCII doc into LaTeX to get a attractive PDF. Um, And I looked at the lean pub publishing paradigm, but the one thing I, I wanted, two things I wanted in the PDF copy. I wanted floats and I wanted marginalia and those seemingly simple things are not trivial to achieve. Um, spent a lot of wrestling and ultimately LaTeX was really the only, uh, format that was going to give me what I wanted. There's not doc, there's not open source free docbook book, uh, converters yet that support floats well. And so I'm sorry if I'm going into publishing our, no, no, here please, for the audience. please, please, please yeah, do. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the other thing of course was the feeling that, you know, I could do better financially. You know that uh, you know the the uh, publishing the book. You, obviously, when you go through the big houses, you you uh, they take 98 seemingly seemingly 92 percent or 98 percent of the money. It feels like. Um,
0: well, in, we, in, you, in academic publishing, it can be up to yeah. like 98.5 percent.
1: Or 101, you actually yeah, wind up paying. That's right. Um, you know, so, yeah, I uh, you know, I didn't feel that that was necessary. And I felt like I'd already proven myself. I mean, I'd been through the process not just once but twice. I mean, I qualified for a second edition with Elsevier. Um, that was, I felt, you know, significant vote of confidence in my my capability and choice of topic. And so I felt, you know, that 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 starting my own, you know, trying to do this on my own was a reasonable uh reasonable choice. I'm fairly happy with the result. I'd wish I'd you know, there's decisions I'd wish I'd made differently along the way, but in general I have more or less functional HTML, PDF, ePub and Mobi files um and I'm working a little bit more to polish them up. I'm also a little bit late to the game with uh co- I'm going to I'm hiring a couple copy editors. I, I write reasonably well. But I'm hoping the copy editors can take it down a grade level, um, maybe even two grade levels in terms of reading difficulty because sometimes I use stupid academic prose that really doesn't add a lot of value and somebody can give it a good strunk and white treatment and it'll, it'll be value add all around.
0: Um, you described how you make your PDF, but I was wondering if you could explain to um, people listening who might be interested in making books themselves and using Leanpub. Sure. Bring your own book feature where you make your book however you like and then you can upload it and get take advantage of all of our... Storefront features. Um, So yeah, and you can upload one or all of PDF, EPUB, and Mobi uh, Ebook formats, so I think people might be interested in hearing how you get the EPUB and Mobi.
1: Well, that's exactly that's exactly right Um, So do you want to I mean certainly if you have the artifacts if you have good-looking PDF that you feel proud of um, And same for the EPUB and Mobi as Len says you can upload it directly You don't need to use EPUB's author authoring tools um, which by the way, you know, for, for many applications, I mean, if I had written a different book and there's already books I've thought about that I would just use LeanPub's authoring tools. You know, a, a full blown survey textbook that's running 600 pages that you know, might be actually hard copy in a bookstore, it's kind of a special animal um, and which is why I did what I did. Um, but for monographs or, you know, books that are more current, more topical, uh, books that, you know, really need to keep up to date very quickly with uh, new technologies. I think that, you know, going with the markdown uh, route and, uh, you know, as long as you don't want to do fancy things like wrap text around pictures, which is when I use the the, the term float. Um, that's what that is. You know, if you don't want to do fancy, dumb stuff like that, then, you know, you don't have to. Um, but in terms of the tool chain, I mean, basically, I, I wrote, I chose to write the thing in AsciiDoc, which is a little bit more formalized, has a little bit more of a standard around it than Markdown. Markdown's kind of gotten fragmented, um, and uh, you can also, you can also integrate AsciiDoc with uh, BibTeX for citation management, which was also a plus. And uh, like I said, then um, I've got a uh, use a converter called uh, uh, db uh, db LaTeX. So I, convert, I use AsciiDoc to convert to DocBook, and then I convert the DocBook to LaTeX. And then I've got to do a whole bunch of, of massaging uh, of the LaTeX, which I use. I use some regular expressions and turn it into that final uh, public, publication quality PDF that you see that will, be con- that will be also getting also a further visual upgrade with the assistance of some LaTeX professionals that I've identified and will be working with.
0: And do you use that same source document to make the EPUB and the MOBI as well?
1: I do. Um, I, although what it, what it goes, it goes from ASCII doc. In that case, it goes from ASCII doc to DocBook to EPUB ASCII doc has a direct EPUB converter, but it doesn't work with the bibliography approach that I chose. So in some ways, this tool chain is still a little bit crazy making if you want all of the good stuff. I mean, I've got 250, 270 citations in the book. I need a citation manager. I can't be messing with those manually. And, and yet the, the ASCII doc Bibtex, um, uh, you know, in kind an of early stage and, and then I just couldn't get it to work with the, with the EPUB uh, output. And so that's kind of where I was last week is, you know, pulling my hair out around that.
0: And what was the solution?
1: What I did was I was a, the the um, ASCII doc um, BibTeX converter works fine to docbook. Okay. And then then from docbook there is a set of style sheets called db2epub and those style sheets were what I ultimately went with. There's actually a few different solutions from docbook to epub including just sticking the book into a tool like XML Mind or Oxygen but I was getting some failures and I had said, you know, I used, I think I stuck an XML mind and just did a, you know, export to EPUB. And then I got a Java stack exploded on me and it's like, Oh boy. Okay. I need to go in and up- upgrade the memory on Java, but I got another working solution. So I've just got this whole spreadsheet of tool chain stuff that works and tool chain stuff that doesn't. I mean, I've been messing with Pandoc and, uh and caliber and sigil i had no oh, then i had to put the thing into sigil to get a cover in but then once i put it into sigil then kindlegen didn't like it anymore because it had an html cover and i made some adjustments to the table of contents and contents and and then kindlegen blew up on that and then kindlegen has also been failing on you know for uh, for less clear reasons in other cases it, it's really been an amazing set of you know kludgy kind of semi kludgy things and thank goodness for ubuntu uh because with ubuntu you just you know download these packages and set up this tool chain you set up the scripting but it's still it still all feels very very early stage i mean i think I, i keep coming across people like tearing their hair out like me saying why isn't there just one integrated solution that gives me the public the publishing control of latex and the flexibility of docbook and it's free you know it's like, there's, you know, just, it's, it's not all there. And if anybody can tell me that there's something that I'm overlooking, I'm all ears. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we're, um we're trying to provide, provide obviously um, our own approach to uh, that uh, problem at lean pub. Um, we've got you know, various things we've done. They don't, but they don't uh, accommodate everything. Like for example, we don't have a way to do marginalia. And one of the, one of the founding principles we have is that we're, although we want books to look great and we do think LeanPub, the LeanPub process makes great looking books. um, Part of our uh, philosophy is that when you're, we want to build a great tool for writing and publishing, particularly in progress, Mm -hmm. but also complete in progress, but also completed books. And that um, what we strive to do is allow you to get to the point where you, when formatting becomes important, then you can take something from LeanPub that can then be used um, to apply formatting to, so we have our one of our solutions to that is an InDesign um, uh, output um, uh, feature. Um, but um, we have it's, it's, this is these are huge problems. We're um, working on something that my co-founder Peter Armstrong is creating, which is the called the Markua Spec, um, uh, where he's basically writing a Markdown for books. Um, so we're, mm-hmm. we're transitioning away from Leanpub flavored Markdown to create books, to something specifically created. Um, you know for four books, and hopefully that will help with uh, some of the issues that you 've been describing. Um, I just wanted to ask you um, one last question which sure. is what 's the future for your book? What are your plans
1: well I can my plan is um, i'm going to i 'm not going to short the marketing of the book um, I am going to uh, um, i'm developing a marketing strategy with some with some associates right now and the book needs uh, consistent and sustained marketing, and I think I'm in a position to do that. It needs a you know a full a full blown campaign. Uh, like I said, it needs a it needs a full copy edit. Pre, it needs a full copy edit pass. It needs a new LaTeX template. Um, once I get those two things done, and I've sourced, I've identified partners on both of those, so with that all of that works in progress. And then I uh, identify, and then we get a marketing um, uh, strategy going. I mean, when somebody Google's DevOps textbook or Agile textbook, I want this book in the top five. Uh, and there's going to be more and more re- requirement for that. I mean, you know, this, 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 these bodies of knowledge have stabilized. They have become dominant uh, in 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 their influence on how digital is delivered. And my book is a comprehensive survey, you know, suited to the teaching, the busy teaching faculty who don't have time to research all this stuff, they just want a good, solid reference that brings it all together. And I think that I've got, I think there's a great opportunity here. I think that, that I'm hitting a market that is currently underserved and you know, certainly looking for any, any interested parties, you know, who have ideas on how to partner on this.
0: Well, if there's anything um, we can do to help you when you're um, marketing your book, uh, please let us know. We're always listening to authors and um, trying to figure out how we can help them. Um, solve their problems, including getting the word out. So, uh, yeah, please let us know um, if you ever have any suggestions or run into any blockers.
1: I will. I will.
0: Well, um, I wanted to say, Charlie, thanks very much for uh, taking the time to do this interview. I I learned a lot and your listeners probably will have as well. And I also wanted to thank you for um, using LeanPub as the platform for publishing your book.
1: And you guys are certainly welcome. And I certainly appreciate the support you've given me so far and look forward to continue to working together.
0: Thank you.